Father, we, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that we can gather together, that we can dive into your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us just eyes to see and ears to hear and spirits, hearts, souls to receive what your word has to say to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate our minds. I pray that we would behold marvelous, wonderful things in your word, that you would give us even a, a, a deeper capacity for the things that you want to do in us and through us and show us and that we would leave here uh, just worshiping you for how good you are and how near you are to us, Lord. And so I pray this morning uh, that as I decrease, that you would increase within me. God, I ask that you would speak prophetically through me. And God, I ask that if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and their Savior and their King of their hearts, Lord, I pray that they would not leave here without having fully surrendered to you as their Lord and Savior. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, let's uh, kick this thing off with a little call and response. I do this every now and then. We've got a few that we kind of rotate through, and I think one is particularly uh, applicable for this morning. So, um, if I were to say, he is risen, you would then say, Love it. It's an ancient church greeting. This is how often the early church would actually say hello to each other, which I think is very cool, right? So, he is risen. 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 And that changes everything. And this morning, we are going to get into the plagues in Exodus. There's a whole lot of death happening in the plagues. And so I want to I emphasize where we are in the story. Because there's a whole lot of death and destruction. There's a whole lot of blood. But contrary to many crucifixes you might see, he is not dead. He has conquered it. He is no longer on the cross. He is risen. This is the lens through which I want you to see what's happening here. It's all very intentional. And so it, it, it's actually pretty, again, applicable for me because I, I'm also, as I'm sort of like transitioning out of that sling and into healing, I honestly didn't expect to find a tra a, a, like a strange comfort in the, in the sling, right? Like you see me. I'm going to be doing this. Like I, I'm like, this is how I'm, I'm used to being. But I'm like, no, I can do this and I can do this and this is, this is great. But there's this weird attachment to that thing. I, did, I, I thought when I'm done with that thing, I'm going to burn it. But there is a weird comfort that I'm like, it's, it, leaning into healing is actually a process. Now, can God do it suddenly? Absolutely. But he chooses often, especially in this world, to go to use the process of time. And we often tend to get frustrated with that, and yet the reality is that's a tool in the hands of a sovereign God. And he's calling us to lean into that process. Even though often that process comes with some discomfort and difficulty. This is part of our being drawn out of our counterfeit identities and into our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High. Trusting Him, relationship, it's all important. Because radical bondage demands radical deliverance. And so the process by which He chooses to deliver the people of Israel even is like a rehab for their souls. There's a lot going on here as he's drawing them out of their bondage and he's drawing them into their sonship in him. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at the way God orchestrates the deliverance of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. And as we're going to see, it's not just a physical bondage, it's also a spiritual one. So I want to show you that the way that God delivers Israel on a local scale in Egypt is also a prophetic shadow of how he's currently delivering his people even globally today. Okay? And so we live in a world that's full of both light and dark, confusion and order, chaos and death plague this world. 
We often hide our eyes from it and kind of ignore it until it's just blatantly in front of our faces. And then we go, where is God? And he's saying, all of this destruction and chaos is pointing to the fact that you do, in fact, need a Savior. Things are, in fact, not as they should be, but I am not distant. It's not meaningless. And so I want you to see all of these things this morning, and I want you to see that there's a whole lot more going on than we often think. And in this passage, in these passages here in Exodus, what we're seeing is that God is exacting judgment upon powers, principalities, and rulers who would hold his people captive, not just physically, but also spiritually. And so I want you to see that these are groanings. These groanings are a part of the process of deliverance. So my hope is this morning that you'll not only learn how to live and walk as a people of hope and faith, but also as a people commissioned by the Holy One of Israel in a world that is plagued by difficulty. Okay? And so I want you to see there's way more going on than just natural disasters in this passage. It's, there's way more going on than just people who can't get along in this world. There's things underneath it and behind it. There's way more going on. This world is not as it should be, and yet in Christ, God is and has been bringing all of creation through this process of deliverance, like a woman in labor. The promised child is to be delivered. There's so much significance to this. So again, what we're seeing here in Exodus is a succinct prefiguring a type and a shadow of what has been and will continue to play out on a global scale in all of creation until Jesus returns. And so as a framework, we're going to roll through chapter 5 through 9 this morning, all right? And so I'm going to read some, then I'm going to summarize some of the passages, but heads up, this is going to be one of those messages that may feel like, again, just drinking from a fire hydrant, right? Just so much information and context. It's not one of those like spoon-fed kind of scenarios. But the reason I want you to get this is because there's so much here that's going to affect the way we see the rest of the Bible and the way we see the rest of the world. And so this is all part of providing for you a biblical perspective and paradigm or even worldview. And so I want to enter into that this morning. Um, and so we're gonna, as we walk through this very foundational story in the Bible, um, we're going to walk through the storyline and then we're going to close with three practical takeaways uh, that we get from three of the main players in this story. And so the three characters that we're going to pull some practical application from are one, the magicians, two, the pharaoh, and then three, Israel. And so from uh, the magicians, one of the takeaways I want you to get here right up front is just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's from the Holy Spirit. All right? That one will preach by itself. Just because it's spiritual, just because something supernatural took place, does not mean it is the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more going on in this world. Okay? Two, what do we get from Pharaoh? Self-exaltation is enslaving. It is exhausting. And it'll cause you to be forgetful. You get real short-sighted, okay? Three, Israel. God often delivers his people through the trial and the trouble, not necessarily from it. God doesn't always deliver you from the fire. He often will deliver you through the fire, okay? Here's what I want you to get if you get nothing else. It's actually straight out of Jesus' mouth in John 16, Here we go. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Say peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He is risen. So Jesus said this right after warning his disciples of how they will be scattered so he warns them of, like, difficulties coming, but take heart. And then uh, in 1 John, the apostle John, the beloved disciple, he writes this to the early church. 
He's just been talking about the spirit of the Antichrist that's already at work in the world even back then. And then he says this in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, like a grandfather being like, I got you guys, okay? Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You remember this, okay? All right, look with me now at Exodus 5, verse 1. It says this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Moses and Aaron, they faithfully and courageously do as God has asked them to do and told them to do. And they courageously go to Pharaoh and they say, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord. I know you've never heard of this guy, but this is who, or this God. <laughs> but this is what he's saying. The God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, who's that? Why should I obey the God of slaves? Right? And so he's like, I don't know him, so no. Right? One of the primary burdens, hear this, one of the primary burdens that's placed on the slaves, or the people of God even, was to make bricks out of mud and straw. And so for the next few verses, the Egyptians, uh, it, it says they described them as, as having provided the straw for Israel to make these bricks out of mud and straw. But now, because of what Moses and Aaron have said, they're like, get your own straw. So they oppress them further because of the audacity of Moses and Aaron. They now have to get the straw for themselves. They're not going to help them. But the quota of bricks that they have to make still stays the same. It was an impossible task which inevitably leads to this constant beating and, and suffering of God's people. And I want you to get the imagery here, because many of you feel this in your life even today. There's this clear reminder here of the curse of sin on man. Like Pharaoh has unwittingly even leveraged the shame of the curse that was pronounced in Genesis 3 over man for his sin and rebellion against God. Back in Genesis 3, it said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So no matter how hard you work, you'll never be good enough. So his response, Pharaoh's response to their cries is simply shame. You're lazy. You're not good enough. Do better. Be better. That's how slaves operate. Their identity is in their production, and nothing is ever enough. Anybody ever felt the weight of that in this world? You don't even need a tyrant. Your tyrant often lives right in here. And so they come to Moses and Aaron, who had promised that God would deliver them. And verse 21 says this. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. You can hear the shame and the blame. These are not a people who have received sonship and promise. These are an oppressed people, toiling, striving, and insecure. And when you take on an identity of a slave, you have a sense deep down that you don't have what it takes. And so you live to simply cover your shame and insecurity. And often it comes in the form of blame shifting, especially in the face of accusations. Can't handle the accusations. Trying to hide from those things because deep down we know, ooh, that is who we are. And so notice, I want you to see that people attribute evil to Moses and Aaron, and then Moses even attributes evil to God. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? Like, at that point, it's just like, God should just be like, and he's gone, obliterated. He called God evil. He's attributing, I want you to see the patience and the mercy that God has. And so, he's like, Moses comes, he's like, you promised, <laughs> right? 
And this is where most people quit God. This is where they check out, you promised, you didn't do it the way that I wanted on the timeline that I thought. And they, they bow out. It's where people say, well, I tried God or church or Christianity and it didn't work for me. And as I said before, that's because God is not your employee. Right? He doesn't work for you. This is the relational shift that must take place in our hearts. He's the sovereign Lord of glory who desires to draw us out from our enslaved and insecure identity and deliver us into his family. But that comes with, first and foremost, trust, which often comes through a process. Trust me. Because, guys, there's nothing more secure than those who receive and, and trust in the relentless love of God. And see, slaves, they value reprieve more than they value purpose. But a son has ownership of a greater vision to flourish. Instead of just doing enough to be done with the work, the slave lay, lays low. He just does enough to get done, and then he lays low, not cause a stir, just to survive. But his son has a bigger, greater picture and leans into the desire and the heart of his father for the flourishing of everything and everyone, including themselves. And so it's the spiritual oppression that's dynamically opposed to true sonship. But God is faithful. He's so patient. He knows this is just the beginning, and his response to all of this fear and uncertainty is promise. He just goes back to promise. He's already promised them in detail exactly how this is all going to go down. And then he just reemphasizes it and reminds them. And verse Exodus, uh, verse Exodus, wow, Exodus chapter 6 verse 1 says this. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And so for the next seven verses, God reminds Moses of how faithful he's been to him and his people. And he reinforces the promises that he's already made down to the detail. Even back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the, uh, his entire promises back through the ages. And now he's just reinforcing it all, which that's very important. There's a reason God reminds his people of their promise, even in the dark. Because when you're in a dark place, we all need to be reminded of who God is, amen? And what he's already done and, and what he's already said, because it's easy to forget in the dark what you heard in the light. P.S. Gospel community is important. This is what we do. We remind one another, even in the struggle. And yet God's faithfulness and his patience, again, is so on display here. So God snaps Moses out of it, and then Moses goes to snap all the people out of it. Look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. So he's telling them everything God told them. Moses speaks thus to the people of Israel. And they all said, we're with you, Moses. God is faithful. Hooray. That's not what they say. Not at all. Right? Maybe, maybe Moses thought that because he's like, okay, I trust in him. Maybe they will too, but that's not what happens. It says that they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You ever been around somebody who just can't be consoled? Like no matter what you say or do, they're going to believe the worst about their situation and their future. That's what's going on here. And it's the result of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Things aren't happening exactly the way they want it to, and they're quick to despair. It's a pattern that we're going to see throughout this book. But God knows. Say, God knows. And he's faithful. And he's, he's, his promise is true, even when we can't see it. But even though Moses has his doubts, when God says go, his faith in the promise overcomes his doubt and insecurity. Look at Exodus 7, verse 5. The Lord says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them, 
And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Get that image in your head. It's not about your strength, it's about his. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That's significant. Remember, I've told you before that Pharaoh's uh, divine power is often portrayed through the cobra. And so you see this with the hood that he puts on, the cobra head coming out of the front of it, right? That it's designed to symbolize divine authority that's given to him from a goddess they worshipped called Uraeus. All right? And that means actually rearing cobra. And so she was the goddess of sovereignty and the goddess of royalty and the goddess of authority, even divine authority. That's what they believe. That's how they worshipped her. And so this staff also, a staff is a symbol in the ancient Near East of authority, which is why each of Pharaoh's magicians or this spiritual, these spiritual councilmen each have staffs. These aren't magicians in the way we think of them. Like they weren't entertainers. They weren't even tricksters necessarily. They were operating as agents of Pharaoh's divine authority. And see, Pharaoh wasn't just a king. He believed, he was believed and seen, and he even believed to be himself the very manifestation of the son of Ra, the most high God of the sun. And so this son of the most high God's authority was then represented by a rearing cobra. Remember, this is a pantheistic religion, and so everything in their world had a God. We would call them demons, lowercase g, not uppercase g, okay? And so I've told you before, there's way more going on in this passage than just a few natural disasters that frustrate Pharaoh into releasing Israel. This is a necessary deliverance from principalities, powers, and authorities that were oppressing the true God's promised people. And so God here, uppercase G, is exposing the counterfeit and establishing himself as their true Savior and Lord of all. Again, Exodus 12. We read this before. Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. We're going to get to that next week. And on all the gods of Egypt, lowercase g. I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Okay? So this wasn't an illusion. It's not a trick. It's a statement to a group of demonized men and to all that they oppressed that Yahweh the Lord is the true and ultimate sovereign authority. Verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. But you best believe they got his attention right there, right? These guys come out, and they start throwing in that snake, swallowed up their snakes, right? That got his attention, but he's just getting warmed up. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water, which when he goes out to the water in the morning, this is likely a religious ritual in worship to the Nile god, Happy. All right? This is part of his morning quiet time, but to a demon. All right? So stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. So on the other side of the Nile, Moses and, and Aaron roll up on the other side. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you've not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. 
And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood, in vessels, and in vessels of stone. So everything. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Blood everywhere. Now I want you to follow me. The God, happy, H-A-P-I, not like happy, right, Um, was worshipped as the bringer of fertility and life. So he was, in some ways, the one that caused them to be happy, right? So Because he brought upon them circumstances that were prosperous. He was the one who brought the flood waters of the Nile each year that would overflow the banks and deposit the soils that were brought, all the minerals and all the fertility of Africa was just dumped all over them. And then when the waters receded, guess what happens? These massive soil deposits are teeming with life. So Egypt heavily relied on the Nile for their prosperity and their order. It was an annual thing, and they thought that Happy was the one that brought it, or they believed and worshipped and even sacrificed unto him for this prosperity. Their worship really revolved around the Nile and this God, Happy. This is the same Nile that they were throwing dead Israelite babies in, in chapter 1 and 2. In the same river that God delivered Moses from as a child. It's not insignificant. This plague is a judgment on Egypt and the Nile God. It's also a reorienting and a prophetic statement that true life, hear this, is not found in the Nile. It's found in the blood. In fact, we'll see in Revelation that there's a river of life that's flowing from the cross. Pretty cool. All right, time back in. Because by the blood comes true deliverance. And we're going to see this in the 10th and final plague of the Passover lamb, which is a direct foreshadowing of who Jesus is and what he's done for us all. Okay? You guys tracking with me? Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So we got some imitation happening here. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh turned and went into his house. You can hear kind of like a, right, as he goes back in. And, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the waters of the Nile. And so just like when bad things happen in this world, follow this, it's a sign that things aren't as they should be. It's all a blatant reminder of our need for salvation. But so many of us use these things as a reason for bitterness towards God instead of an invitation to turn towards God. We blame him instead of repent and cry out to him. Right? So it only makes Pharaoh more determined. Remember, Pharaoh thinks he is a manifestation of God. He thinks he is God. He's operating under the idea that he operates in the power of Ra himself, who is the most high God. So another piece of this is that likely his anger and frustration is coming out of the, the, this concept of him being the son of Ra. Okay? And so a major role that Pharaoh played in Egypt was to maintain what was called ma'at, or order in the land. This is how his, part of his perceived role as Pharaoh was that his divine power supposedly extended not, o- not only over the economic pres- prosperity of Egypt, but also the natural order of things which directly connected to the River Nile. And so he would have seen all of this as a direct challenge on his own divinity and authority and his own perceived control, and everybody knew it. And he hardened his heart against it. He was like, game on, let's go bad idea. And yet we tend to do this a lot. Verse 25. So seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Notice it's the Lord that struck the Nile. Not Moses and Aaron. They're just messengers. 
And then chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. <laughs> what? Oh, no. Right? Why frogs? The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls, which is why they make bread. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. So class distinctions are out the door. Frogs everywhere. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come, out, come up on the land of Egypt. And so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now notice, this second plague is still connected to the river Nile. It's still connected to the waters. This is important. Because part of God's deliverance process here is that it's a kind of decreation event on a local level. All right, follow me. In other words, it's like a creation event, but backwards. It's like what we see in Genesis, but reversed. It's backwards because everything has become disoriented towards the vain purposes of Pharaoh and Egypt and demonic deception. It's twisted. He's untwisting it now. God methodically, even surgically, undoes the spiritual bondage at work over his people and in this land. In fact, the first two plagues are on the waters. Strike the river, strike the waters. The next three plagues we'll see will be a, um, a judgment on the dust of the land. The dust of the land. So it's waters and then it's land. And then after that we'll see a judgment on the air. This is all significant. It's a localized prophetic picture that gets expanded to the entire globe, actually, in Revelation 16, when the bowls of God's wrath pour out on creation and are actually using these symbols. He, it's a throwback to what's happening in Exodus here when you read Revelation 16. And so all creation deserves this judgment. That's the picture. God doesn't have to send these plagues to cause disorder and chaos. He's the one preventing it from falling apart in the first place. All he's really doing, he's the one who's like bringing the order. They've rejected him. And a world that rejects the one who holds all things together is a world that welcomes, invites, and even craves destruction. And yet, in his mercy, God still desires redemption. I want you to follow me. So by allowing these signs or judgments, it's a revealing of the true state of the world. Because he loves you. He even loves Egypt. What? He loves them. It's all designed to bring about repentance. That's a sign of mercy. Not just meanness. Right? Like again, what we're seeing here on a local scale in Egypt is expanded to the entire globe in Revelation 16. And it's all designed to wake people up. To be sober-minded to the reality of a fallen world that's in need of a savior. More on this later. All the way through, actually. So here, God is not just destroying everything. He seems to be methodologically or methodically disassembling that which Pharaoh thinks he upholds himself. And as he does, he makes it clear to all that every lofty idea or principality that exalts itself over the Lord and his promise and his purpose will be dealt with and even made an example of for the sake of his people and his promise and redemption. So that you will know that I am the Lord. And yet again, each plague is a merciful warning and an invitation to repent, to reorient, to reorder around the true Lord of all creation who knows and desires what's best for us all. It's a trust. Now, back to the frogs. Why frogs? All right? Again, this judgment is in tandem with the Nile God. And there was another god or goddess, pair, 
who were associated with the Nile and with reproduction. This is important. There are ancient hieroglyphs or hieroglyphics who depict an Egyptian god and goddess who form babies on their potter's wheel, which is also associated with the birthing stool. The idea was that uh, this Egyptian god would take the mud deposited from the Nile and then form it into a human, and then his goddess counterpart would breathe life into it. Sound familiar? And so now I want you to remember that back in chapter 1, Pharaoh sends the midwives um, to the Hebrew women when they're on the birthing stool. Remember this? And so they could kill, this is where they would kill the male babies, or they would find out this is a boy or a girl. It was like an ancient, like, uh, sonar. What is it, what's it called in the room with the ultrasound sonar? Too many Navy people around me. <laughs> um, but it's like, it was like an ancient ultrasound moment. And it was a, very much a, uh, a spiritual ritual for them. So that language here with the birthing stools directly tied to this god and goddess. It's also significant that they were to throw these babies then into the Nile. This was highly demonic. And so Pharaoh's reason for killing these babies was that they were becoming too many. They were reproducing too fast. The Hebrews seemed to be everywhere. They were multiplying. They were swarming Egypt. These unclean Less than human slaves in their minds. These slimy croakers were everywhere. You can bet Pharaoh was praying to this goddess, Heket was her name, this goddess of reproduction to stop their multiplication. You also want to know what the goddess Heket is depicted as in ancient hieroglyphics? We have a picture. There she is. That's how she's depicted. This is the goddess of reproduction. And so now the the land is swarming with slimy, croaking depictions of their own attempts to wipe out God's promise. And a fundamental judgment upon the very foundations of their society and its future is now at hand. So, can you handle this? You guys with me? So God, this is a demonic principality that's at work. And it's not just an ancient one. It's very much at work in this society. It's got nothing to do with frogs and all that stuff. I'm not saying there's like, don't go all Hollywood on me. But there's a principality here that's at work. And it's very much at work in our society today. We live in a world where prosperity and personal achievement often takes priority over God's image bearers. So the killing of the unborn is, is and always has been a demonic assault on the very image and promise of God. And yet, God's mercy is real, and his grace is available to all. But this judgment is loud and clear, and the Lord is declaring here, I am the one who holds authority over life and death. Nobody else. Verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come out onto the land. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Like, go, go plead to the Lord for me on our behalf tomorrow. So Moses says, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And so the frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. So power in your prayers. Especially when you pray for your enemies. The frogs died out in the houses. Listen to this. The the frogs die out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so these dead frogs, they represent a decisive defeat over the goddess Heket. But they're also a foreshadowing of what's to come if Egypt continues to defy the Lord. 
And so I want you to think of this cleanup process. Get this imagery in your head, all right? Piles of rotten frog bodies stinking up the land. They're in your bed. They're in your courtyards. They're all over the place. They're everywhere. And if they continue to ignore the Lord, then the land will be littered with the dead bodies also of not just frogs. Remember, frogs are representative of reproduction, and often Hiket was the one that they were praying for, for the reproduction, not only of their own children, but also for livestock and animals. And you know what's coming next? Dead livestock everywhere, all over the place. The bodies of their best soldiers will be washing up on the shores of the Red Sea for weeks. Even their firstborn sons who hold the future will be lifeless in every home across the land of Egypt. It was a foreshadowing. I don't want you to get the, or miss the tone of this, though. The tone of these judgments gets often very confused. But there's a very important passage in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, which gives us insight into the character and the tone of God. And it says this, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. He's not just sitting up there like, yeah, now what? Don't get me wrong, there's some of that. All right? But it's not something he takes pleasure in. He loves people. He hates wickedness. And so he is leaning into this, this tone. This isn't just a mean, angry God here. He's not gloating over the death of his image bearers. In fact, his patience and desire for mercy and repentance is all over this. We see it even in Moses' heart for his enemies as he cries out to God on their behalf. And God relents. We're going to pick it up here a bit. I'm going to move a little faster here for the sake of time, okay? So Exodus 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Other versions say lice. So we've moved to the land portion here, right? And so the waters have been judged and now the land. And so they did so. Verse 17, Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats, or lice, in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. That's interesting. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the Hebrew word here, again, it really means like biting insect. Some, again, translations say lice, which I think makes the most sense, especially given the significance of the magicians to this passage. And, and, and the judgment here just shuts them down. You see this? Like this is significant. Before this, they were able to imitate each plague, and they were a little arrogant, right? But now they're like, this is the finger of God. Like what's going on here? They were never able to do this before, which means that their imitation only... Uh, what they were doing before was just an imitation, which only exacerbated the problem. Like, they were just like, and look, we can do it too. More frogs. Wait, that's not what we want. More blood. Not, they're not, not tracking. So all they were doing was imitating. You see this? This is important. All that was doing was stroking Pharaoh's ego in order to harden his heart. But now, there's no doubt here, they're outgunned. They even admit that this is the finger of God. This plague would have actually caused them to be unclean. This is important. This means that they couldn't even enter their temples or perform their ritual arts before the gods. Magicians, the, the, the Egyptian magicians or sorcerers or wise men or however you want to call them, there's all kinds of different language, they would actually be portrayed without even eyebrows, had no hair. They shaved themselves completely because of their fear of lice. Because if they got lice, they'd be unclean. They wouldn't be able to perform their ritual arts and their secret arts before the gods. You see this? So now this lice has come all over them, and they're unclean. They're counted out. This was an attack on these magicians. They were so meticulous about staying hygienically clean from lice that this judgment now has taken them out, and it was a clear judgment on the entire religious cult of Egypt. Verse 20. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies. So it was gnats or lice, different word. And now I will send swarms, which like multitudes, different kinds of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with these swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And so I want you to see, this is also likely a mixture of different kinds of flies. And some commentaries even link this to biting flies, which the Egyptians uh, held in high esteem for this, like, tenacity and courage to torment larger animals. You ever had, like, a deer fly get you? You ever been in an area where it's, like, it's like a swarm of them? That is not fun. That's all kinds of no good. And yet you see them, and you're, like, killing them, and they're all dying, but they keep coming at you, right? And so they're, like, the tenacity and courage of those little buggers, right? That's what the, the Egyptians actually held that in high esteem. They had many amulets regarding them as like a place of courage uh, and even necklaces that they would wear as these tenacious insects. And of course, though, this is where I think it really lands. There's a popular Egyptian god named Kepri. And they, this, this god, I don't have time to get all the pictures, but he was depicted with a human body and the head is a flying scarab beetle. This God was also connected with differentiation, setting things apart. And the next verse drives this plague home. But on that day, verse 22, I will set apart the land of Goshen. He is the one that does the setting apart. You see it? I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. And there came a great swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. And the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And so in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the tribulation, though God's people certainly had to endure difficulty, there is a difference. There is a setting apart. There is a separation, even a protection. They are in the world, and yet not of it. And somehow they're spared from the full weight of this particular judgment. And going forth, they're spared from all the others as well. They're set apart. 1 Corinthians 4, I think, puts it like this. In the New Testament, Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, sorry, perplexed, but not driven to despair. There's a difference. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I want you to think of the faith that this would have produced in the people of Israel. Like the significance of growing in trust through the difficulty. These plagues are all over the place. It would have scared them to death. Especially since they were like, we don't know this God still. Like, they're they're kind of like, we don't know if God's going to actually do this. We don't really trust him yet. And all this stuff starts going down. This was more than just physical deliverance. God was drawing them out, but also drawing them into their identity in him, in trust, in faith, as sons, not slaves. It's a process that's going to extend all the way through the book of Exodus. And so that happens most effectively when God delivers us through the fire and the difficulty, not just from it. That's what really sets God's people apart. Again, in this life, you will face trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And as I get older and I face challenges, I realize now that the same challenges that I would have faced 10 years ago that I face now, like some of, the, some of the challenges I face today, they would have taken me out 10 years ago. And now it's like a speed bump. It's just a heritage. That's not because I'm like, I'm, dun, 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 dun. it means that I'm like, I'm not, he is. It's a heritage that's built in trust. Not in my own amazing faith, but in his faithfulness. Verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings shall, sa- so, 
the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? All right, so we've got some back and forth here. And we, we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh says, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. And then he says, plead for me. So this is Pharaoh asking Moses to plead for him. And so Pharaoh is kind of breaking down here, but I want you to hear this. Like, don't get this twisted. Like, I, if you're parents, you know that there is a huge difference between being sorry for what you've done and sorry you got caught. Right? That's real. Pharaoh just wants the plagues to stop. He's not really repentant at all, and Moses knows it. Verse 29. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, chapter 9. Verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold the land of the Lord, uh, behold the hand, not just the finger, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. So you're like, it's true. But the heart of Pharaoh was still hardened, and he did not let the people go. So again, God's judged the waters in the first two plagues, and now this is the third of the land judgments, and it's all on these livestock, all sorts of livestock. And so, again, why livestock? Well, livestock was a major signifier of wealth and prestige, especially in the ancient Near East. Like it meant you were powerful, affluent. It meant you were important. It meant you were successful. Having a lot of livestock was like having a big bank account back then. Okay? It was like a super secure 401k or having a healthy herd of flocks like meant that you had security and importance for generations. And yes, just like today, people worshipped that stuff. Right? Like in fact, you guessed it, Egypt had a god for that. His name was Apis. And he's depicted in hieroglyphics with a human body and the head of a bull. And it represented power, prestige, affluence, influence, wealth, and downright impressiveness in Egypt. Even the impressiveness of Egypt. Right? It's like the horns on the front of Boss Hogg's Cadillac. Remember that? Dukes of Hazard? Anybody? Showing my age? Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, no. But the idea here. Or maybe I'll, I'll, I'll make it land a little, uh, the Brahma bull tattoo on, on the rock. That, that hit hard. You know, leave Dwayne Johnson alone. But it's true, right? It's impressive. It's impressive. Mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns, right? It's certainly not a thing in our society. How about the New York Stock Exchange? You ever seen this? It's right in front of the New York Stock Exchange, the financial district. I'm not saying it's a demon, but I'm not saying it's not. <laughs> Incidentally, a bronze bull like that is how many of the Christians were boiled in the early church, in a bronze bull. That's not in my notes, but that's real. There's a method here. There's something happening. God is calling Israel to take even their livestock into the wilderness and sacrifice it. Now hear me. God prospered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with many livestock, many herds, many flocks. It's not saying that being wealthy is wrong. 
but it's an important aspect of being freed from these oppressive spirits, principalities, is having a, 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 a heart of generosity, saying, that's not my security. My security is not in my 401k. My security is not in the stock market. My security is in the Lord. This is why he's calling them to do what? Sacrifice. What are they going to sacrifice? Their lifestyle. That's what he's calling them to do. He's taking, called them to do, take it out. He's saying, trust me. I am your provider. I am all you need. It was a method of deliverance from the gods that they had come to rely upon for their security. The gods that ruled over Egypt and oppressed them, but Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. So the Lord put his security, uh, the security of Pharaoh to death instead. Exodus 9, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become the dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And so again, this is a judgment on the air. Ephesians 2 actually refers to the demonic principalities as the prince of the air, or sorry, the prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to Satan. The prince of the power of the air. It's a New Testament reference to who he is. It's like a spirit in the air, a way of thinking, a paradigm, even a worldview of oppression, like a mental disease or affliction that's designed to oppress and destroy God's people. It's just in the air. And just to drive this association home even further, it's not a coincidence that this soot is taken from the kiln. In fact, it would have been the very kilns that the Israelites used to bake those bricks. Follow me. The correlation's clear here. This was a disease in the air over Egypt that fueled their desire to oppress God's people and squash his promise. And now the very evidence of that oppression, that soot from the kilns, is being used as the indictment upon Egypt and Pharaoh. And their own affliction manifests as boils and sores. Verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Here's the Egyptians before. Like not, first they were like, we can't do anything. Now they're like, we can't even stand up. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So God had struck down the power of the air in Egypt. The magicians show up here not as, as not even being able to stand before Moses, and not, not just physically, but spiritually. So the depicted here is both impotent and unclean, utterly incapacitated, and yet Pharaoh has still hardened his heart for so long that even though these magicians are crying out for mercy here, he doesn't listen because he's been given over to his own depravity. We're going to close here. Three takeaways. All right? From the magicians. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's from the Holy Spirit. Okay? You can have miracles that happen in your life that just bind your heart to money. That will draw you away from deep reliance and trust in the Lord. I'm not saying, like, pray for all of these things. Like, guys, invest. I hope your portfolios go through the roof. Like, praise God, right? But don't let it grip you. And there are some spiritual magicians out there that will try and, like, do some hocus pocus on you to take your eyes off of Jesus and put them firmly on yourself. Okay, it's called the prosperity gospel, all right? Again, generosity principles are very real, praise God, amen? But it's, a, it's about discipleship, it's about relationship, it's about deliverance. Okay, so this is the first takeaway. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's from the Holy Spirit. Just because you think you heard from God doesn't mean it couldn't have been other spirits also. That's why we're called to test the spirits and the scriptures, to, to weigh them by God's word and gospel community. This is, we want you to develop a personal relationship with the Lord. I want you to hear from him. He does correspond. He does speak even. Praise God. It's good. And we want you to commune with him. But if the spirit you're leaning into is leading you towards isolation or fear, fear of real community or away from deeper love in Christ and his people and his purpose, especially if it's fanning the flames of your own ego, because you think you're like the martyr, it's probably not the Lord. 
And it's important to note that when we indulge in sin, we open the doorway to the demonic. So nobody can say, well, the devil made me do it. Right? We see that it's in tandem with when we indulge in sin, it's like ringing the dinner bell and being like, hey, this area of my life, you know what? It's not God's. Come on in, destruction. And the enemy in this world will do that. He will take that cue. And yet God is still so faithful and merciful. And he will lean in. He will pluck you out. Praise God. And so this is an important part here that he does, that the enemy does prey on our indulgence of sin when we willingly lean into those things. But, and, and so the point here is that you're never an innocent victim of demonic deception, especially if you are a Christian, okay? Um, but repentance is always available. Forgiveness is there. And in many ways, covered by the blood, walking in the faith of uh, the grace that we've received, it's like, he's just so faithful and good in this process. But we are called to fix our eyes on him. Which leads to the second takeaway here we get from Pharaoh who refused to fix his eyes on him. Self-exaltation is enslaving. It's exhausting. And it's forgetful. Again, Revelation expands these principles to a world of rebellion and hard-heartedness. It's a picture of the way the entire world operates in rebellion to God. And it's a world that shakes their fist at him. The gnashing of teeth, that's not just because they're in pain. It's because they're like, I hate God. That's, a, that's how Jesus described hell. Like you need to understand that, that we live in, a, when, when people talk about hell, nobody in hell wants to be in heaven. Because heaven is where Jesus is. Heaven is where the Lord rules and reigns. Nobody in hell wants to be there. They just don't want to be in hell. It's like Pharaoh. He's like, plead with me. Get all this stuff rid of it. I'm not going to really follow. I don't love God. I don't want anything to do with him. I'm God. This is the world we live in. And so, again, You'd think that when it becomes clear that Jesus is who he says he is, that, 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 and the Lord is truly the sovereign, good, and gracious king, that people would repent. But that's not even the picture Revelation paints. In fact, what we see is that what's depicted here by Pharaoh, that digging in, that bitter resentment, that gnashing of teeth, that shaking of the fist, that's how people are often portrayed. That's how they're portrayed in the scriptures, in Revelation even, that, that, that they are just leaning into um, that depravity. But there are those who are rescued, repent and follow the Lord and lean into his sovereign goodness. And so incidentally, um, yeah, I'm going to go here. I, I want you to see the characters known here that if you're familiar with things like the whore of Babylon, the great prostitute in Revelation, the beast and the Antichrist, these figures, I want you to see here that she is prefigured, the whore of Babylon, the, prost the great prostitute, she's prefigured here with the magicians. All right? Revelation 17 portrays the, the, the whore of Babylon or the great prostitute as riding on the back of the beast, which is like the nation state. She's drinking the blood of the saints. And it's in essence how these magicians operate. They're propped up by Egypt and they're drunk on the oppression of God's promised people. It's a prefiguring and a type and a shadow. Pharaoh then is cl a clear type and a shadow of the Antichrist. And again, the nation state of ancient Egypt is a type and a shadow of the beast. On a localized scale. Even Gog and Magog, more biblical terminology if you're confused, don't worry about it. But they're also prefigured here in Pharaoh and Egypt, the beast and the Antichrist. It's not about, hear this, it's not about trying to figure out where we are today on the timeline or all this stuff. It's a call to use discernment to the demonic spirits that they serve and the principalities that are at work in a fallen world. That's how the scriptures are portraying them, okay? And then finally, Israel. We learn that God often delivers his people through the trial and through the trouble, not necessarily from it, okay? And so we learn to be patient, learn to be faithful, to trust him in the meantime, and to lean into love and the process that he's not forgotten you. He sees you. He hears you. He knows. Say, God knows. This is all a part of how he's drawing us out of the counterfeit and drawing us near into sonship. And Jesus tells us to take heart deep down right here. It's not about fear. It's about faith. It's about trusting in him. That Jesus now declares to us here and today that we can take heart because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because our calling is even higher than the ancient Israelites because we're now a part of the new covenant in Christ. 
It's not just an out there idea. It's an in here relationship. It's an authority even and an anointing that we're called to walk in as a chosen race, a royal people, a priesthood of all believers. That's who we are in Christ. Because all that they were pointed to has now been realized, and we stand on the shoulders of ancient Israel as his new covenant bride, the very body of Christ upon the earth. And so we're spirit-filled, blood-bought sons and daughters of the Most High King. The very breath of his spirit has kissed your souls and spiritually raised them from the dead. This is who you are if you are in Christ. He lives within you and he beckons us into this deeper relationship with him every day, higher up, deeper in. Right now, right where we are. And we've been commissioned by Christ, who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, over all demonic powers, every one of them. And we've been called to operate as those whose enemy has already been defeated. Now this comes with a great call to exercise wisdom and discernment. It's not a call to be cavalier or egotistical, right? It's a call to lean into his process. His purpose, his presence in the midst of all of it and point to the king of all eternity and creation. This is what we do. This is the gospel. That God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die and he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection and he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what Christ did for us at the cross and through the resurrection, because he is risen. 